Welcome to People of Hope, a conversation with the pastoral staff of Ignatius House Jesuit Retreat Center in Atlanta, Georgia. February is a month that we think about love. We're past Valentine's Day, of course, but as Christians, isn't our entire mission and purpose for love? Ignatius's principle and foundation essentially states that everything we do and choose ought to be for the love of God. Jesus said that all the law boils down to the love of God and love of neighbor. The English word love is loaded and limiting. We celebrate love on Valentine's Day, often in a commercial or sometimes cheap way, yet it's a day celebrating a martyr, one who dies for the love of Christ. I realize this is a Huge topic for a half-hour podcast, but we have Maria Kressler, the executive director of Ignatius House, and Father Bill Noe, a retreat director on staff, here to join me, um, love experts, <laughs> to scratch the surface on love from our Ignatian perspective. And we might even talk about love from a vocational stance. I've been married for nearly eight years. Maria has been married 39, to be 40 years this December. And Bill is a celibate priest. So we surely have a lot to say on this topic. So I thought, let's begin with a big question to to Maria and Bill, and then I I can answer it. When was the first time you truly understood what love is? And how would you define it? How would you define love? Like you said, it's a big question. And when you try to go back to when did I first discover it? as the oldest one in this, in this triad here talking. Um, when I think about my first memories of love, I think of it as a, chi- as a child being loved, and what I understood to being loved by my parents and by my grandparents and the, the people who held me in their arms and kissed me and squeezed my cheeks and said they loved me in those ways. So those were very, um, they're endearing and, they're, and they were very tangible verbal um, notions of affection and care. And, and it was, I don't know how early on for me, but I, but somewhere early on in those years, as I was raised a Catholic um, woman and in an Italian Catholic family that was very devoted to the, to the faith and to the rituals that somewhere early on, I understood that love was also a word that meant sacrifice that there was something about about what we did for the love of the family, my father would say. And sometimes that meant sacrificing something for the other. And I can remember as a little girl, even when it came to holiday times and, and things about, you know, what we, for Lent for that matter, the giving up, the, the giving was something or the sacrifice was out of, out of a love that came from something um, deep within us. And so we, we did things like, what could we do for mom because we loved her and we wanted to help her in some way? And, and, and so this is, again, I, I love when I'm asked a question to reminisce a little bit because I, I realized that I was very blessed in the ways in which I was brought up to think early on as a little girl to think about how could I show my mom I loved her? <laughs> what could I do for her? So some of, there, was some, there was an action involved in what I understood to be about love. I laughed to myself when you asked the question because it is a big question. And I think my answer is that I don't truly understand love. I don't truly understand it. Um, I think I would say of love what I would say of God. 
I hope with God's help, I am finding progressively less inadequate notions of what love is. And my mind and heart have been filled with all sorts of inadequate notions of what love is. And it's been work to get rid of some of them. Love is making sure that everything works out for the one I love. Love means taking care of another. Love means taking care of the feelings of another. Love means being there for another no matter what. And along the way so far, each one of those has shown itself in my life to be an inadequate notion of love. So if I were going to take a stab at a definition, how do, what do I understand about love so far? I would say it's this. Being there for another without abandoning oneself. Hmm. Being there for another without abandoning oneself. Because, in fact, Jesus couldn't be there for everybody. Because the ways some people wanted him to be with them meant that he would have to abandon himself, and he wouldn't do that. Um, so being there for another without abandoning myself. Makes me think of loving God and loving neighbor as yourself, that you, you can't fully love another if you don't love yourself. Yeah. There's, a, there's a scene in the uh, few years ago, the PBS miniseries of Les Mis, where uh, Jean Valjean, after you know 19 years in labor, is welcomed by the kind bishop and given a meal and a warm bed and everything. And he's just bitter, right? And the bishop says, you know, doesn't it, doesn't it serve your fellow man to, to, to love, you know, even if you've been through something difficult? And he said, basically, how can, I, how can I love when I haven't been loved for the last two decades? You know, it took him, it, it took him, him a while. Just and I, I love the story so much because here the bishop is witnessing to what authentic love and how transformative it really is. Mm -hmm. But it took Valjean a while to actually come to recognize his own worth and dignity and belovedness so then he could become a lover. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer the question for myself, you know, I'm, I'm sure my wife would want me to say that I first came to know and understand what love is when I met her. <laughs> but admittedly, when I, when I met her, even toward the beginning of a relationship, we certainly would say we, we loved each other. Um, but I would say I was probably insecure about that love. You know, um, I was looking for proof or perhaps, Maria, like what you're talking about, sort of that transactional mentality that it was, I was expecting something and I couldn't put my finger on it. But I think when I came to, to really understand what true authentic love is, is when I was reading Anthony DeMello and some other authors too, in just speaking about the love of God as completely gratuitous and freely given without coercion, without expecting anything in return, and given to all people good or bad, sinners or saints. And that just like, that really opened up a space for me to, to, see, to see love as 
yeah, just as, as transformative and freely given. And you often hear, and I'm curious what you think about it, it's often said that love is not a noun but a verb. And, and I'm curious what you think of that because one thing that DeMello said, which really struck me, and I think it kind of Ignatius says this too in his contemplation to attain love, is that that love is unselfconscious. Love just loves because that's what it does, whether or not there whether or not there is an object to love. And he gives the example of, you know, like the rays of the sun, which Ignatius does too, that the rays of the sun or the flow of a fountain flows and gives light or whatever, whether or not there is an object to receive the water or light. Because I think in our culture, we we often think about love as always having to have an object. So this just kind of opened <laughs> opened things up for me. What do you think about that? It's a state of being when you describe it like that, right? I am loving to whom or whatever comes into my path or my space. I, I am loving. And, and, and I think when you say that, I think about Jesus. Is that not what he was in himself everywhere, just always mm-hmm. in a posture of loving? I mean, you know, I, I, I think that's why, like, even our scriptures, right, you know, describe love. One of my first conversations with John when, you know, at the time, a professed atheist, and I've been, I've been talking to him that, he, that there wasn't a God, and I just said, well, do you believe in love? This very undefinable thing. And by then, like you and Sarah, we were already saying, I love you to each other. So I said, well, if you're telling me I love you, what is love? Just, you know, define it for me. What is it? And, and, and the, it was just like God couldn't be defined or pinned down, or mm-hmm. <laughs> nor yeah. can you pin down love. And so it became kind of our little joke. Like, well, I, I would say to him, well, I think you believe in God, but you don't even know it. If you say you believe in love, you believe in God. If God is love, and that, that, that whole, that, that, that equation, if you will. But I think love is kind. Love is patient. Love is, we describe it, right? We describe what it is. What you just described, though, was a state of being, it, it's love can only love. And therefore, you're almost, you're describing God, right? And it's, being. I guess as I think about it, and I haven't thought about it for, well, how long has it been since you asked the question? One minute, two minutes. That's as long as I've thought about this. But the, for me, the sort of objectless state is like something waiting to happen. That love is actually waiting for an object. And so there's something that hasn't happened yet until the object shows up. And that's when the action can happen. So there's a disposition, maybe, mm-hmm. an inclination, an outward going that's just waiting for somebody to meet or something to meet. Mm-hmm. And that, that's when loving actually happens. So there's, there's a disposition that's waiting for the lovable object to be there so that there can be communion. I'm imagining like this stance with your arms open, ready to embrace whoever comes by. Yeah, and you know, this makes better sense for me of something I said about Jesus, because Jesus was always in the stance of loving, but was not always able to meet 
another person. It was not always able to be carried out because the carrying out would have meant somehow him abandoning himself. So in one of the letters, it says something like, if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because God can't deny God's self. So there's a place, there are places in the Gospels where Jesus' disposition to love doesn't actually lead to communion with the one that he would wish to love. Mm. But the disposition is there. He's waiting for it to be able to happen. And sometimes it doesn't. I, I love what you're saying, Bill, because it, what I'm hearing is the invitation to love. That, there's that, that, that stance is always one of invitation, but there, it has to be, the invitation has to be received, right? That's when the intimacy and the relationship happens. The intimacy with God, when when the receiver, the one that you're that's being waiting for that loving, and what you're just saying, and I just like the word invitation because I think that's there's always that's just so hope filled. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, and it's the it's the mutuality of the contemplation to attain love. Each one gives and each one receives, and if one either cannot give or cannot receive, something doesn't happen that could happen. Do you but think it can though, be that blocked. that the idea that even that Ignatius puts in the contemplation to attain love that the flow of love is happening again whether or not there's an object to receive it so the love is still occurring we can shield ourselves from the flow of love but it doesn't stop the flow That's like I love that just the analogy that's the sun shining right it's always shining <laughs> something blocks that sun it sh- from, from shines on the good and the bad Yeah it's always there. Or no one. Yeah. Yeah. But, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about, um, I think it's um, Aylred of Riveau who's, who talks about knowing the goodwill that's there for me is part of friendship. It's part of loving. So I'm not sure. I want to think more about this because I think there's a sense in which love is there whether a person is aware of it or not. But something is different about love when there is shared awareness. There's a depth Mm -hmm. that isn't there, at least on the part of the one who's receiving. If I'm not aware, love might be there for me, but it doesn't reach its effect in the same way until I become aware of it. Mm. Um, Isn't that that part of our Christian mission is letting helping people be aware of the love that's already there, right? Their love, people can be loved whether or not they receive the love. They're loved by God nonetheless. Yeah. But there is, a, there is a difference. That's where that conversion of heart takes place when you, your eyes are open to it. Yeah, it's like um, I think about um, things that we sometimes say about things like baptism. And sometimes we say crazy things about baptism, like we're brought into God's family then, which to me is crazy. As I think about it, what was already true becomes explicit mm. in baptism. Mm. What was already true, love has already been there for me. And in baptism, there's a different participation because I or the family that's going to raise me has become aware, and now they can participate in the exchange in a different way because they're aware. What was already true is explicit, and it can become mutual. So then the exchange can happen 
And until that happens, the mutuality is limited. I like that you brought up that that point on awareness, though, because that is that that is so Ignatian in the, in the sense of the examine. We we do that in order to pause, to take moments to to see, to be aware of where God has been, where love has been. I mean, that's often the way in which you mm. you can go through that day. It's like, where did I feel love today? Where was I love today, loving today? Where did I? Yeah. There's many ways to look at that, but it's a it's the it is our awareness of things versus just just moving through life. Many people don't know the depth of the love that's there for them. I was yeah. that that comment earlier, Andy, as you spoke about that about how do I know God's loving from from the wonderful Les Mis was what I experienced when I was in were doing prison ministry and you know recognize that there were some who really never did know. They never knew what I I mean. I know I shared my little story there. I knew I was loved. And 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 so to me, a very natural way of wanting to, to, to experience that was to keep loving other people. Like, I just want everybody to have the love. Well, if no one's ever had it, mm-hmm. how can they mm-hmm. give it? And I remember when I was when I was doing that ministry, the, the kind of coming the revelation that I would, would share with them as like, you may ne- you it may be true that you did not know it, but mm. you can be it. Mm. And in the being mm. it and in your being love. Then it will. Then you will. It will generate, and you will. And you will feel that, and it will come back. You know, tenfold, hundredfold, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I had a struggle with that. As I, that was my biggest revelation. It's like you know, happy life, happy family, move in, start doing some ministry, and start to recognize not everybody knows this kind of love. Mm-hmm. You know, when when somebody says, you know, God loves you just like your father loves you, and you have a person who doesn't have a father that loves them. So all the things we used to teach in Sunday school when you know I was. It's not true. And that revelation for me in life was one of the earliest shifts I had into, A, my responsibility in, as a lover, that how powerful love is and, and, and how transformative it can be when we live in that place. And then recognizing that there are many, many who have never known um, love that way. And, and then again, the responsibility. How do we, how do we, how do we be loved? How much of our image of God is formed by what we're given uh, in our childhood? I, I was speaking with a friend the other day who said, you know, he grew up being told, you don't have to be friends with everyone, but you have to love everyone. And he said, at some point, that became my understanding of of God, that God only really sort of loved me out of this sense of obligation, and he said, now I, I, I make my, my prayer, not God, you love me, but God, you like me. And that holds mm. something more special for him, that God likes him. I think there's a difference there. You know, for some people, that changing of that word might be helpful because maybe you weren't liked growing up or, or, or cared for, loved by your parents. Or maybe you're, you know, maybe you just felt more of a, loved by a sense of obligation. Yeah. You know, thinking about the spiritual exercises, there seems to be a sense, whether it's true or not, and whether Ignatius's intuition, as I take it, is true or not. Yeah, in the in the contemplation on God's kindness for us that's unchanged by the fact of sin. You know, the stuff that that from what's called the first week of the spiritual exercises. 
he seems to be convinced that we can become aware of love that was there for us. So that the person marvels, you know, not only did the earth not open up to swallow me, one has been there for me without abandoning itself. Um, there has been help for me. There has been help for me. So he seems to have a deep, deep sense that there is evidence in each life, maybe not in my father or in my mother or in my brother. There is, I can become aware of a quiet love that was there for me hmm. in a way that actually deepens it and brings it to a kind of fulfillment and communion so that I can actually want to give myself without abandoning myself. St. Ignatius in that meditation like really give, has this sense of awe, right? Like I'm not swallowed up by the earth despite despite my own sin and recklessness and so on, that the saints and angels keep praying for me. There's this awe, like you'd be on your knees in this, in this awe. And I quote this a lot. The Jesuit Howard Gray says, God makes no sense if you use the criteria of this world. And I think that's what Ignatius is kind of, get, what is getting at the first week, that even with like, praying with our own sin and the sin of Adam and Eve and the angels, this whole concept, this whole Christian concept of sin is that like, how, it's like, how can I still be loved despite what I see in my life? Ignatius uses sort of this real sort of almost vile imagery. And here we are yeah, in the presence of love. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah, it actually, he, Seems, and this probably has to do with his own sense of himself. He had a pretty damaged sense of himself. But there's a real freedom that comes from realizing here at what I take to be my least lovable moment, I find that I'm loved and it disproves my notion of myself. And the fact is that I'm lovable even in my sin, even in the worst of it. Because otherwise, the earth would have swallowed me up. That's a love that's free, right? That's not transactional with God. That is a love that continues to shine and flow. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We've spoken for a little while, and, and I, I notice, and, and maybe it's a good thing, actually, that we haven't really talked about vocational love in the sense of of marriage or celibacy. And um, it's funny, Maria, you, you mentioned the Corinthians passage, you know, love is patient, love is kind earlier. And I just this past weekend saw the new Agatha Christie film, uh, Death on the Nile with Hercule Poirot. And uh, one, of the, one of the characters says, Corinthians was wrong. Love is not patient or kind. It is jealous and rude. You know, it keeps an account of wrongdoings. <laughs> and of course, the, the film is about this sort of killing in the name of love and everything. And uh, I, I wonder about that because this is kind of how we talk about love. You know, like I would kill for love. And, you know, um, I, I don't know how true that is. 
would I murder someone <laughs> for love? Uh, that doesn't, there's something yeah. false about that to me. I don't know. That's a, that's a funny juxtaposition. I can't think of, um, because uh, to me, when I, when I think of those kinds of qualities that we see in here, they are hard. It is hard not to be jealous and envious. We, I mean, in other words, it is, it is an act of, there is a willfulness in, mm. inside. We have to choose it. You know, one of the best things, everything was said when I was, we were getting married and marriage prep was like, to love is to choose every single day. So when a marriage commitment, it's a, it's a vow and a commitment that I choose to love you every day. And this is where that was funny when you brought the like thing. I may not like you today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, in other words, there may be things to, but I, I've, I vowed and I choose to love. I choose. And that, we say that a lot, choose love, right? You know, versus the other. Mm-hmm. What's, well, choose what? Hate, choose the opposite. And so there's a part of me that does, that thinks there is a choice. And so unlike you, then therefore I could not kill, choose Though when you talk about a mother and a mother's love over her cubs and you know, what would one do to protect, right? So that mm. you can you get down a whole sure. lot of different paths there when it comes to, um, in the name of love, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, but you're talking about you're talking about something that Sarah and I talk about in our marriage prep program is consenting to love daily and the many ways that we consent to love not just in a romantic relationship but any kind of relationship of of care and concern for the other that um the moment i am even the example of of marriage we've known couples where just you know they're going through a difficult time counseling would be helpful but one of them is not open to counseling and sarah and i have said you're not consenting to love you're not really consenting if you're not willing to um, do what what needs to be done to to recommit to that love. So that idea of consent that, yeah, I can, I get it. I get it that, that someone could look at that Corinthians passage and say, what are you talking about? Look at look at the world. Look at these relationships. Look at the jealousies and, and the fights and the nitpicking and the stereotypes about marriage. You know, love is hopeless. But that's because we're not consenting to it fully. Not to be a downer. But. Bill, I wonder if you would talk about your experience of love in the particularity of a, of a celibate life. I've been thinking about this in preparation for our conversation. And it's hard to say very much for the simple reason that to the extent that I've discovered anything on this journey so far, it doesn't seem that different. It doesn't seem that different. I mean, it's different in a way that um, humanly and culturally we make a lot out of. But I mean, I think early in my in my Jesuit life, I might have had the idea that, that love as a vowed celibate religious was somehow going to be fundamentally different that, that it would involve less passion, less sacrifice, less aching. And where I am now, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be true. Um, it doesn't involve genital expression of sexuality, but otherwise it's basically the same. You know, you mentioned earlier, love being a free thing. Um, it hasn't always been like this for me. 
but it's increasingly my experience that my vowed commitment is actually setting me free to love. And that's not the way vows are, at least religious vows, the evangelical councils are typically thought of. They're typically thought of what we promise not to do. We won't have this, we won't have that, we won't do that. And so it sounds like constraint. But in that way, I think they're like marriage vows, if they're well made, that they actually set the ones who make them freer to love. And it makes perfect sense to me out of the flow of the spiritual exercises where a person is invited to commit in a small way or a big way or a reform of life to make a choice and the choice frees them to love more. So one of the reasons I haven't said much about it is that I don't think they're fundamentally different. They are different in one really important way, but they're not ultimately different. At least that's my take. So I'd be interested to hear Maria's take. Because it's a human experience, isn't it? It's a human experience. So that makes sense to me that it's not so different. Yeah, you know, about eight years ago, I think, I read a book that described celibacy as a sexual way of life. And that changed most of what I saw as distinction between the way of expressing love in a marriage and in a celibate commitment or a single life. That it's a, it's a pretty infrequently chosen way of living a sexual life. So it's not that different. Mm-hmm. Andy, don't you, I do think there's something about the, what you said about free, being free to love. There is a, is there, I mean, in my experience of, of that, our choosing to love one another in this committed um, relationship in our marriage, did it, it increased a freedom to love in so many different ways, right? You're not there. What, once committed and once once confirmed, if you will, in that, then it was like the sky's the limit. Like more more was generated from, and there was a freedom. And people get are so caught up in the attachments of things, or the or what you're what you're now forbidden to do. Like you know, it's like there's a, you know, he's chosen choosing a celibate life and then choosing a chaste life, which is what ours is. We've chosen one person. And one and one one other body to live out this life right in this world. I mean, it. I think. Um, well, it is often spoken about in those in those negative terms, right? Like, I'm getting married, so that means I'm saying no for me to all these other potential women, and yeah. you know, Bill is also saying no to to any partner, right? Romantic yeah. partner. But we, we'll look at that in that negative sense rather than what is this opening us up to? Yeah. yeah. There's, you know, there's um, years ago, uh, an, an elderly married woman who I knew, she herself had been a religious sister. And the man who became her husband had been for many years in a men's religious community. And so she had a really interesting take on this. She said, my husband and I are celebrate, celibate in relationship to almost everybody. Hmm. My, my husband and I are celibate in relationship to almost everybody. That's um, a neat spin on that, yeah. 
Yeah. One of the things that I think is sometimes painted as a difference, which I think isn't true, um, sometimes love in a religious community or by priests or vowed religious is seen as very broad in contrast to deep and married love as deep and very narrow. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Now, I think there can be the challenges in expressing love, you know, in a celibate commitment at depth might be different. Or in a married commitment, being able to love with breadth, the challenges to that might be different. But I don't think it's fundamentally different. Well, I, you know, I just to wrap up here, I appreciate that the talk of vocational love and that committed love was the last thing we talked about to acknowledge that love is so much deeper and, and bigger than a, a married love or, or a, a celibate love. And why is it deeper? Because it's God. Because God is love. And because uh, as, as God is infinite and, and endless and uh, ineffable, so is love. And I think that's mm. what makes it makes the mystery of love so appealing to us as human beings. So thank you, Maria and Bill, for just, again, scratching the surface um, of this mystery. And I think thank that you. maybe we can, we can just end with Pedro Rupe's uh, poem attributed to him, Fall in Love. And just, it really equates falling in love with finding God. Nothing is more practical than finding God than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love, stay in love, and it will decide everything. Thanks, Maria, and thanks, Bill. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thanks for listening. Learn more about Ignatius House by visiting us at ignatiushouse.org or following us on social media. And be sure to subscribe to this wherever you listen to podcasts. May the blessing of God be with you always.